turn please to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this week that we've had. Father, it's touched our hearts, Father, to hear how you've used these great men and the callings that you've given them. Father, speak to us tonight. Father, just help us to take seriously the calling you have on each of our lives. Talk to us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This portion of the Bible talks about a soldier, a centurion, an officer of the Roman army. He's also a Gentile. And if I'm not mistaken, the first Gentile that was saved, a soldier. Roman soldiers were not particularly liked in Palestine, in Israel. Most of them weren't known as being particularly just men, particularly kind. But there were some, like this centurion, who isn't named, but who were used of God either to show those around him, around the disciples, that God will, can save anybody, or to show his own apostles, Christ's own apostles, that salvation isn't just for the Jews. In Acts 10... Turn over there, please. Acts 10, we find another centurion. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. We're going to read about a man named Cornelius. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently, about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake to Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius was a centurion, part of a Roman legion. The Roman legion was about 6,000 men. We would call that a brigade these days. The Roman legion was commanded by 
one of six different men who would take turns in commanding that unit. They're referred to as chief captains in in, uh, Acts 21. This particular band that he belonged to was the Italian band. The Italian band was was a band of volunteers. The legion was subdivided into ten of these bands or cohorts. A cohort subdivided again into three maniples, and the maniples divided into two centuries of 100 men each, hence the name. They were commanded by centurions. So today we would call Cornelius a company commander. Cornelius, according to the Bible, was a just man before God and in his sight. And he was just because Christ had given him that righteousness. He was a new man created in righteousness and true holiness. And he lived soberly and righteously and godly and obviously had an impact on his servants and his godly soldier that that, uh, was his servant. The Bible says he was one that feareth God and he worshiped God. He was a man of good report among all the nations of the Jews. Now the Jews, as I said, did not like the soldiers of Rome, particularly in Caesarea where many Jews lived. But through Cornelius, God showed the Jews and showed Peter that salvation was to all. We see in verse 2 that he was a benevolent man and a prayerful man, as we should be, whether we're soldiers or not. We see in verses 7 and 8 that he was an obedient man, for he was told to send people to Joppa. That's exactly what he did. He sent his servants to Joppa as he was instructed. And then we find, if we move over to verse 24, it says, And the morrow after they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and he called together his kinsmen and near friends. So he called together those family and friends around him. He was a soul winner. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up and said, standing, stand, uh, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And he talked with him and went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know that it is unlawful for a thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. God used Cornelius to show Peter some things. But Cornelius affected more than just this one soldier. For a couple of centuries later, Christianity would spread well beyond this one centurion to the point where there were whole legions converted to Christ. And God would use these as examples for us. In 286, there was a legion called the Theban Legion in the time of Emperor Maximian. Maximian in 286 was engaging in, or embarking rather, on one of his uh, expeditions into Gaul, what we would call modern-day France. Accompanying him in this mission was the Theban Legion. That legion consisted of 6,666 men, and it was distinguished by the fact that they were comprised entirely of Christians. That was a fact that didn't please Maximian And so Maximian had a plan for this group of Christians. As they entered into Gaul, he ordered a sacrifice to the Roman gods. An oath of allegiance to Maximian and a pledge that they would eliminate Christianity from Gaul. Every member of the legion refused. 
And so Maximian ordered the legion decimated. Now that term decimated, if you're familiar with the term decimal, means a tenth. A tenth would be chosen by lots and beheaded. And that's what Maximian did. 666 men beheaded. No one moved. No one recanted his faith in Christ. Maximian ordered a second decimation. Another 600 men put to death. Not a single legionnaire changed his allegiance to Christ. And so Maximian, on September 22, 286, ordered the entire legion of 6,666 men beheaded. Do you think they were familiar with Philippians 1.28, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, whether I come and see you or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not one Christian soldier broke ranks. Years later, in England, General Sir Henry Havelock, a Baptist, born in England, April 5th, 1795, he had six brothers and sisters and a mother who would pray with them and read them the Bible daily. When he was at Charterhouse, a prestigious school, he would meet together with his classmates in one of the rooms and they would read the Bible and engage in prayer and conversation. Henry Havelock at this time was not a saved man. He'd been brought up in a religious home and likely had a saved family, but reading the Bible and praying does not make you saved. He was commissioned in the British Army about a month after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. But it wasn't until he sailed to India in 1823 where he met up with some Christians that he got saved. He never realized that his sins could be completely blotted out by the Savior. But he took that and he taught that to his soldiers. He held prayer meetings daily and scripture lessons with his men. They built Baptist churches throughout India. They were known as the most moral and bravest soldiers in the army. They were known as Havelock saints. They were so dependable that they were called upon frequently to engage in missions which required special heroism. He was married on February 9, 1829 to Hannah Marshman, who was the daughter of uh, William Carey's companion in the faith. He was baptized April 4, 1830. And he became a hero through his exploits in Afghanistan. But he became known mostly for his actions at the Battle of Lucknow during the Indian Mutiny of 1857, where he earned the Victoria Cross, the highest medal of the British Army. In that battle, he fended off 50,000 drill sepoys with his 2,500 men, but died two years later after he fell ill on November 22, 1859. But in those last moments when he was alive, he told Sir James Outram, For more than 40 years I have so ruled my life that when death came I might face it without fear. I am not the least afraid to die as gain. I die happy and contented. His last words were to his oldest son who waited upon him, and he told him, Come, my son, and see how a Christian can die. His son was also named Henry Havelock, was also knighted. And Sir Henry Havelock, on Tuesday evening, March 26, 1861, had the honor 
of opening the first public meeting of the Metropolitan Tabernacle for his pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Before Sir Henry sat down, Mr. Spurgeon paid a tribute to the memory of General Havelock. He said that he was sure that when his fame as a warrior faded, that his name as a Christian would live. And he was glad to see Sir Henry Havelock's family in his father's house in a Baptist tabernacle. And he hoped that he would see them for years to come. He's honored today by a statue in Trafalgar Square. There's only four men that are so honored in that central square in London. And this Baptist is honored there. Just a few years later, another soldier, Charles Gordon, Charles George Gordon, known as Chinese Gordon, who had been born in 1833, fought in the Crimean War. He was the one who drew the boundary between Russia and Turkey. He was an officer of engineers, sent to China to put down the Taiping, uh, Taiping Rebellion, a rebellion which had destroyed 600 cities. General Gordon took charge of the army and crushed that rebellion in 1864. He returned to England a hero, but this Christian man did not want glory. He did no stumping in the country. He wrote no articles. He wrote no books. He wanted no reward. He took no gold from the taxpayer. He didn't plan exploits to keep his name in the public eye. He needed none of these things. He could be found in his off-duty hours down in the poor sections of London, helping the poor children, holding a school in his house that he also used as a church. He was fonder with filling his house with poor boys rather than his rich peers. The money that most men of his rank would spend feeding men who, didn't, who needed no feasting, he spent in feeding the poor with food and giving them daily Bible lessons. With Gordon, it was simple. He was a nothing. We've heard that this week. Whatever merit his life had possessed was rather in spite of his good intentions than because of them. He is quoted as saying, I have an enormous province to look after, but it is a great blessing to me to know that God has undertaken the administration of it. And it is his work, not mine. If I fail, it is his will. If I succeed, it is his work. Certainly he has given me the joy of not regarding the honors of this world and to value my union with him above all things. May I be humbled to the dust and fail, so that, I, that he may glorify himself. The greatness of my position only depresses me, and I cannot help wishing that the time had come when he will lay me aside and use some other worm to do his work. And again, speaking of recent improvements he had caused in the condition of the people, he said, I do none of this. I am a chisel who cuts the wood. The carpenter directs it. If I lose my edge, he must sharpen me. If he puts me aside and takes another, it is his own good will. None are indispensable to him. He went to Egypt, opening up vast portions of the Nile. And in 1877, he was appointed governor of the Sudan. He eliminated the Islamic practice of capturing and enslaving black people in the Sudan. Eventually, Gordon returned to England, but in 1884, he returned to confront the Mahdi, an Islamic fundamentalist who had taken charge of the Sudan. <clears throat> the Mahdi had allied himself with the slave traders. 
But Gordon had fallen in love with the Sudanese people, and he was determined to keep them from slavery and to free them. The Mahdi's forces surrounded the capital of Khartoum, where Gordon and his garrison were besieged for ten months. General Gordon begged the British government for reinforcements. Gordon held out month after month, but the government, under the liberal prime minister, William Gladstone, refused to send relief. Public pressure persuaded the government to send reinforcements, but on January 26, 1885, two days before those reinforcements would arrive, General Gordon and his garrison were massacred. Today, because of the influence of General Gordon, the black people of the Sudan are Christians. They today wage war against the Islamic Arabs of the north in the Sudan. But we know Gordon for something else. Just a year before he went back to the Sudan, just a year before his death, Gordon went to Jerusalem. And one evening, he was walking along the western wall of Jerusalem, and he noticed a prominent rocky crag which looked to him like the place of a skull. He determined in his studies that this was, in fact, Calvary. It is called today Gordon's Calvary. He wrote back to London, and others agreed with him. They looked at his findings and purchased that ground. They did excavation, and they found nearby a tomb, a garden, a garden with a tomb that had once been sealed by a stone, and they found that tomb to be empty. We know that today as the garden tomb. General Gordon is laid to rest in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, a resting place for heroes. His statue is along the Victoria Embankment on the Thames. He is not shown with a weapon in his hand. He is shown with a Bible. I stand here a soldier, and I'm proud to be a soldier. I come from a long line of soldiers. My father was a soldier. My father was a general, but an unsaved man. His father was an officer his brother of pilot in World War II. I count as my, in my forebears Captain William Clark. You know him from Lewis and Clark. His father, General George Clark, who held the King's Commission and gave it up to become a general in the Revolutionary Army. But these men, none of them, to my knowledge, were saved men. And so that marks me as somewhat different than my forebears. Or I look to these men that I've counted to you, uh, that I've relayed to you as my spiritual forebears. By all accounts, I shouldn't be in the army today. I'm in the army by the grace of God. I've mentioned this before in my Sunday school class. But in 1998, I was passed over for, for promotion. Now, for those of you who aren't in the Army, when you're passed over for promotion, you don't stick around. You've got about a year left to go after that to get out. I had everything going for me. I had a history that told me that I ought to be successful in the Army. Quite frankly, most general sons, whether they're competent or not, tend to do well in their career. 
During the Kosovo conflict, I was in a meeting. I was in Germany at the time, and uh, I was called out of that meeting and told to go to my commander's office. My commander then told me that I was not going to be promoted. They were kind of taken aback at my reaction. I didn't faint as they had seen before. I knew promotion was of the Lord, but, I mean, it was a surprise. But we must be prepared for surprises. A couple of years prior to this, while we were in Virginia, I didn't know whether God was calling me to the mission field or not. I talked to a friend of mine who was a missionary, still is. And he told me basically what Charles Spurgeon had told his students. If you're content to do anything else, you don't belong in the mission field. If you can do anything else, then God is not calling you into the ministry. But I, have, I was willing. And I think God does that. God requires that of each of us, to be willing. He may not call each of us, but you must be willing. You must have a heart ready to go. So I went home that night and I told my family, I gathered them in the living room and told them, God has something else in store for us. God has something better for us. And so I prepared for getting out of the army. We went back to Virginia for a few weeks, a couple of weeks, to uh, go to a uh, conference where they were going to tell us about, they were going to link us up with some industry it's picked 12 of us, from some from the Far East and some from Europe and some from the States. and They were going to have us interview with industry. And I sat there about 15 minutes, and I told Maria later on, I said, you know, I know God doesn't speak audibly, but I, I, I could almost hear him say, this is not what I want you to do. And I went home, and I prayed. I said, God, whatever you want, whatever you want. If you want me on the mission field, I'll go. And Maria <clears throat> had gone to a uh, ladies' meeting, a ladies' conference in Germany, and surrendered her heart to the same thing. But God said, I want you in the army. I didn't know how that was going to work. I was passed over. God said, I want you in the army. I didn't fill out any more applications, I didn't print out any more resumes. I didn't contact any more of these people that I had been working with for employment. My family thought I was crazy. Others I knew thought I was crazy. That October of 1999, we went down to Italy, what we thought would be our last trip, our last TDY trip. And while I was there, I received a phone call. I was one of three selected for promotion that had been passed over. So I know where my promotion came from. I know why I'm here. And if I had done what others had expected me to do, I would not be standing in this pulpit tonight. I wouldn't be in Texas. I would never have heard of Tabernacle Baptist Church I wouldn't be planning a Bible school. I'd be in an office somewhere doing what God didn't want me to do. A 
God uses each of us in, our, in his own way to touch lives. When I was in the Gulf this last time around, I didn't see anyone saved like I did the first time. I'm still praying for some of those men. There's some that are so close, so close. And I pray I will see them saved before my time here is done. But uh, I got to reach them. I got to witness to them. And I found it funny when I was over there and I would hear these guys saying, Oh, you're indispensable. I got, I got that from so many people. I had one guy that told me that if he could kill six people, if he were Iraqi and could kill six people to hurt the war effort, I was one of them. I went outside. I told my NCO I had to tell him this story because I said, it's not me. I'm not even supposed to be here. This is the same army that didn't want me. I said I wasn't worthy. But I know why I'm here. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> I've not been watching the clock, so I have no idea how far I've gone. Starting at verse 4. This is Solomon talking. A man who the world... Even the secular world, even the unsaved world, recognizes as a man of great wisdom. Solomon, the king, who said, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens. I had servants born in my house. I also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and of all sorts. And so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had brought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. Men live their lives today working to climb ladders. The corporate ladder, the promotion ladder. Going where? I will never be a general in the army. That is not my goal. But I know some that are my peers, that is their goal. They'll stop at nothing. I've heard them talk, and I almost laugh inside because I grew up in a general's home. I said, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. Have at it. If you want it, you got it. But when you get there, what have you gained? But vanity. 
and vexation of spirit. It was said this week we're missionaries in our home. If we gain all the rank in the world but lose our children, what have we gained? General Havelock was successful in the military. But I'm sure General Havelock, if he had known that his son, just a couple of years after his death, would be in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, faithfully serving his God, that would mean far more to him than any medal the British Empire ever pinned on his chest. What are we doing? What are we striving for? I'm not a missionary. I'm a soldier. But I'm what God wants me to be. And I need to be used in what God has called me to do. Pastor.